The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello, and welcome to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel. I'm the host for the podcast. My husband, Steve Siegel, is co-founder co-founder and producer of the podcast. Today's episode is episode number 336, and we do have an interview, but before I tell you about our interviewee today, just a reminder to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and give us a five-star rating so that people will find us when they are looking for podcasts. Please also subscribe to our YouTube channel if you'd like to watch videos, and give our videos a thumbs up. Today, we are talking to a gentleman named Philip Barb. Philip Barb is a two-time Emmy-nominated TV producer, speaker, author, and a performance coach focused on emotional intelligence and dynamic leadership for executives, entrepreneurs, and creatives. Additionally, with over 13 years of sobriety from drugs and alcohol, Philip Barb works with sober executives to navigate a social and peer pressure-laden business world. He is the author of All Reasons I Hate My 28-Year-Old Boss, which is a comedic and motivational business personal development book. Let's talk to Philip Barb. Philip Barb, thank you so much for being willing to be on the podcast today to share your story and give us a different perspective on the whole subject of addiction. Thank you so much for having me. I'm always uh, always excited to talk about my favorite subject of myself. So no, okay, <laughs> I'm, excited, I'm excited to dive in and, and chat with you. Well, fair enough. But tell us just where did, a little bit about your background. Where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? And what got you started down the road to addiction? Definitely. So I am. Uh, so now I'm. You know, I've been sober for 15 years. Well done. Uh, I I live in Los Angeles. I'm a television producer. Um, out here in LA working in, you know, reality TV, you know, shows like Dancing with the Stars and Love Island and those type of things. And, but it didn't start in Los Angeles. So I am born and raised originally in uh, Metro Detroit. I grew up about 10 minutes from downtown Detroit. And, uh, you know, in the neighborhood that I kind of grew up in, I was the, I was the youngest kid on the block. And so I was always around a lot of the older guys. And I was, you know, from a very young age could always remember having that feeling of, you know, oh, I want to fit in so bad. Like, am I cool enough, funny enough, smart enough to hang with the big kids on the block? Um, and, you know, so there was like that anxiety of wanting to make sure that they thought I was cool. But then also I grew up in a household where my mother was involved in the local school board. Uh, you know, my father was a police officer. He eventually retired as a acting police chief. So, you know, the we had council people across the street. The mayor lived next door. So there was an element of feeling this kind of pressure to be a certain type of kid because high of expectation, high expectation. Yeah. And, and, and because in so much of that was because I never really met people that didn't already know me, right? They knew my father, they knew my mother, they already had this idea of who I was going to be. And so, you know, without any real knowledge or, and acknowledgement to myself, but as that kid, you take on this trying to be the perfect kid, the poster child, right? Um, which then puts you in a constant state of always being massively judgmental of yourself and of things and evaluating everything. So you take that, that continues off. And like, you know, I always enjoyed performing well. I played sports. I was, I was good in academics, right? I was trying my hardest to be the high achieving little perfect kid. And, um, you know, that eventually leads to, you know, I'm hanging out with those older guys. I get into, you know, 
elementary school, moving to middle school. And when those guys are 15, 16, 17 years old and they start drinking and going to parties and they're getting into high school, you know, I was 11, 12. So the first time that I was ever, that I was ever exposed to a party atmosphere where I got drunk, actually got intoxicated was like 11 years old with these, with the older guys. And the thing that Sure, it felt good to fit in. I'm sorry and, to cut you off. The thing that sure. scares me is that my granddaughter just turned 10. And the thought of her at 11 getting drunk is a little bit more than I can confront. I'm just going to say that right there. And yeah. now I'll be quiet and you can keep going. No, and look, dive in as you want, right? I love hearing, you know, I love that because it's, and I think it's something that, you know, and I'll talk about even, I think, at you know, it, it's, we can't put our head in the sand, right? Mm -mm. You know, and like, I think that there's elements of my father, right? My father being a police officer and not even recognizing or be, it wasn't even on his radar that his 11-year-old son would be doing these things, right? Because you should know better because you're the son of a policeman and everybody knows. I'm just, I'm not saying it's true. I'm just saying- Yeah, oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, the the perception, right? Yeah. And um, so I get, so when these guys are, you know, 11, you know, or, or like I was saying, what I enjoyed fitting in and I liked the feeling of, of being, you know, of being in a party atmosphere. But I think one of the things that I really took away from it was it took me, it, it silenced the judgment. It silenced the voice. It took me who at my core, I am a person that deeply cares about myself, my family, about others. I care deeply about being a good person. And and, it, and alcohol turned that off. Mm. And that was what I loved. I loved that I did not care. I didn't, I what it was the only thing in, it's a weird way, right? Like you hear talk about Buddhism or meditation or whatever it is. And it's like, it's all about being present, right? And alcohol is what helped me be present at that age. Cause I didn't have any other, I didn't know any other tools at that time. Right. So I start drinking that's in middle school, you know, and that's obviously it's not like every day. It's not every weekend, right? It's like every now and again, you're going to a party, you go on a camping trip, you're drinking all these things. And then I get into, you know, I get into high school and it, you know, you're hearing a little bit more about partying and things like that. And where things really kind of took a big leap for me was when I was 14 years old, my mother was diagnosed with, with cancer. Uh, we had a 11 month battle where she went through chemotherapy. She did, you know, treatments. And unfortunately, uh, after 11 months, exactly one week before my 16th birthday, my mother passes away. Oh. So it was, I'm sorry. You know, that's oh, just, well, th- that's thank you. Brutal. And so it was a, you know, I think for me at that time, right? Like going through the grief would have been difficult. It's difficult enough on anybody at any age, but in a place where, you know, I'm trying to be this, trying to create this false, perfect world where now it feels like it's crumbling because my mom is gone and I don't know what's going on. And I'm really confused and sad and angry and frustrated and all the emotions, but I don't have any of the tools to really be able to communicate that to anybody. Um, and so for me, it was like, you take a kid who is already experimenting with with alcohol at a young age who feels like that's part of a solution. That's part of an escape from myself, which is really what I wanted. I didn't know how to process the emotions. So I wanted to escape all of the emotions. Um, So you take that, you add the passing of my mother and it's like, it was a, 
it was in it was pouring alcohol on an already lit fire perfect storm yeah it was a perfect storm and so for me it ends up you know i get really and i'm still i'm still overachieving right i'm still on the sports team i mean i remember the day we were sitting at the dinner table when my dad told me my mother had cancer and we sat there we cried and i walked in the room and i put my jersey on and i went and played a basketball game because it was like that was my way of like you deal with it and and all throughout the entire time of even my mom being sick and then her passing, it was like I developed what I kind of look at as rehearsed vulnerability. Hmm. It was this idea that, and I think it happens to a lot of people when you go through any type of grief, there's such an outpouring of people reaching out and wanting to talk with you and wanting to be supportive that you can't, you, and after you don't want to have the same conversation over and over and over and over again. Yeah. You, you, you don't want to tell every person, whether it's your father or whether it's some guy that worked with your dad seven years ago or whether it's somebody that used to know your mom and has all these – like you ha- you can't shut down and ignore them. You can't – but you also don't want to dive in and tell them everything. So you start to become, well, you know, hey, yeah, it's a really difficult situation and we're really sad that she's gone. But, you know, I just have to remember all the good times that I had with her. and And we learn all the BS to say – to where people would look and they'd go, man, Phil seems like he's handling this really well, as good as as good as any could can't, you know, could. And sometimes the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 866-989-4499 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one hour consultation with Bobby. And it's all, it was all BS. Like it was completely, you know, not intentional, right? I don't think it's anything that I'm like, all right, I need to sit down and come up with my fake statement of telling people things. It's a coping mechanism. It's a, and 100%. I get it because now everybody wants to talk about how sad it is that your mom died. Yeah, you know, your mom died, yep. you know? Yeah, it's and, a coping and, thing. Yeah. And grief in a lot of ways, right? Like people are terrible at at grieving and, and supporting people through grief. And and it brings out, because it brings out unresolved grief in others, you know? It's- the the amount of times that you'd have somebody that, you know, an unhealed person that wanted to take the, tell the story of their mother or their father or their situation or what happened to them. And it's like, hey, there's an appropriate time for that. And that appropriate time is not me when I'm 16 and you're telling me, this, you know, and and it just goes to show like there's so much that I always recommend to people. There's a great book called the Grief Recover- the Grief Recovery Handbook, which I love. Uh, and it was a great one. And I think there's just so many things that people do incorrectly out of a out of a place of wanting to be helpful, but not being helpful. So anyway, so I, I developed this idea of this kind of rehearsed vulnerability. So I'm going through life and and I'm and I'm still overachieving, doing well in sports, you know, honor roll, national honor societies, getting ready to go off to, you know, go to college at Michigan State. And um and but I desperately like loved and was waiting for the weekend to when I could escape that person that was constantly sad deep down 
angry, frustrated, that was just trying to do his best to like mask everything. Try, and, and in a lot of ways, it's like, I think it, I, it wasn't nearly as much that I was trying to mask it from other people. I was trying to mask it from myself, mm-hmm. you no, know? And I think that, yeah. And no, it was like, no. I didn't want to feel like I didn't want to be the kid with the dead mom. I didn't want to be the, that I didn't want that to be the reason that I was different than everyone, that I was different than my peers was because of that. Um, or have and, that be the reason people are interested in you and want yeah, to talk totally, to you. you know? What's it like to lose your mom? I mean, that's not, that's just not how you want to be known, especially exactly. not when you're a teenager. So for me, it was like, you know, also at that time, there's a movie called American Pie that was out and I wanted to be Stifler, right? I wanted to be Stifler, right? I wanted to be the idiot, the wild kid. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to hook up with, with, I wanted to hook up with girls. I wanted to break stuff. I wanted to be a fun violent, right? As weird as that is to say, but like, but I also didn't shy away from if we needed, you know, do anything stupid and. And I got, I fed off of that idea of being like this crazy kid. Um, well, where it ended up for me was, so at 18, I crashed my car drinking and driving in Detroit. At 19, when I'm up at Michigan State, I get arrested for minor in possession of alcohol. At 20, I get arrested again for minor in possession of alcohol. Had multiple fights. I had one fight in particular where I ended up getting seven staples in the back of my head after getting pushed into a, a metal barrier in a basement during a fight. Yes. Um it had all these different things that were kind of going on while making the dean's list, getting grad, you know, graduating. I graduated from Michigan State in a semester early, so I was like overachieving in all of these ways to try to prove that there. It was like, well, I can't have a problem. This can't be an issue because I've got. Look at this thing. Look at all this other stuff that I'm doing well, and and it was like the one thing I'd say is that I where I what I kind of felt. And I still, to this day, even all these years sober and getting being older and not being that person, like I always have to recognize that two thirty feeling, that two thirty a.m. feeling is what I call it. And for me, it was going to a party and being surrounded with people, having fun, and feeling like you got all these friends and you got a fraternity and you're in college and you're having all this fun, 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 fun. And then you get home at you leave the bar and you get home at two thirty. And it's just empty loneliness. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out, if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com. Or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. That just, that was so all-consuming. Wow. And And did you do any other, did you do drugs or just alcohol? You know, I actually like, I never, I smoked weed a little bit. I didn't like it. I just want, yeah, I didn't want to relax. I wanted to rage. I wanted the, uh, you know, and I, I wanted to, you know, it, and it, it also it was, you know, like as a dad growing up as a dad, and I, I will say the good thing he did from a drug standpoint is my dad never made drugs to me. He never made drugs a danger out of um, like, oh, you could die. It was never a danger to my body. He, whether it was 
conscious or unconscious, but he knew me enough that it was like, Phil, you can't be as successful as you want to be if you if you do those things. Hmm. It was those like the you know the this this neighborhood or this side of town or the like that's what that like that's what that life will be like if you dive into drugs. So I really had no you know I don't I don't know if I was afraid of drugs. I mean, I'd be at parties also I didn't have any money. I didn't have money for cocaine. I said, you know, all the kids that I went to school with that were doing coke were all rich kids from you know, Chicago or from some of the nicer suburbs in Metro Detroit. And like, I didn't have the money for that stuff. And I didn't, there was a part of me that I felt like alcohol was doing so much. I didn't want anything else. That was all that I really wanted. You know, it's fascinating that you, that you say this because today, and this is one of the things we push over and over again with these kids who are trying a Xanax or trying Mm -hmm. a Percocet and then they die because it's fentanyl. Yep. I mean, it, it really is dangerous, but you make a really good point, and that is when you tell an 11 or 12-year-old or 14 or even a 15 or a 16-year-old, don't try drugs because you could die. Death is just not in their universe yep. whatsoever. When you're that age, you are going to live forever. It does not matter what you do. It doesn't matter if you're driving 90 miles an hour and you've been drinking beer. You're going to live forever. So I'm wondering, the reason why I'm kind of saying this is I'm wondering if that may not be a message that is as successful with kids as what do you want to be when you grow up? Oh, I want to be a doctor. Okay. Well, if you get too much into alcohol and drugs, you probably won't get there. Yeah. And I, and I think that was from a drug standpoint, I mean, like with alcohol, right? You could find, you could find tons of doctors and tons of athletes and tons of people that consume those things and they do it fine. Like, you know, I would argue, I don't know how many crystal meth uh, doctors there are out there. Like, I don't know if there's too many that are addicted to crystal meth that are having successful million dollar, like, you know, practices. I kind of doubt it. Yeah. I probably doubt it. Maybe one or two outliers. not for long. Exactly. Right. And, um, but so, yeah, that was kind of like the, the drug, you know, that was why for alcohol it was meant. So, so like I said, it was. It was those couple of arrests. I'm still getting ready to, you know, I'm still doing, you know, everything in my head. Like I'm also, right, as a cop's kid, right, cop's kids and preacher's kids, right? Total, like the uh, entitlement, this element of above the law, nothing can really harm me. Even at times when I would get in trouble, like it, it always felt very minimal. Like, and it almost felt like I was working one over. On the, you know, like that was my whole thing. And and then I get, I graduate Michigan State. I get ready to move out to California to, to move out here to, you know, to get into television and film and all, what, what have you. And in 11 days before I, le- I, I move, some buddies are watching, they, you know, I'm at the gym. Buddies hit me up. They're like, hey, man, come up to the bar. We're watching the Michigan, Michigan State basketball game. And in my head, I'm like, of course, I want one beer, two beers, hang out with my buddies. I'm getting ready to move. I want, that 11 a.m. phone call turned into me getting pulled over. 14 hours later, blowing a 0.29 or 0.28 or something like that and getting arrested and getting, getting a DUI. And in the, in the town where my dad was a retired police officer from the old, from the newest cop on the force that didn't recognize the last name. And it was in that moment, right? This, that it, I had just graduated college. I thought I was moving. I can't leave now. I've got this court case that's now sticking and now it's like I'm at, I'm in trouble in a big way at home, not away at school, not a way where I have others. Like, 
it felt like all these things came to a, a, a halt. You're not moving. You're now out of school. You got to figure out a job. Like there, all this stuff was going on at one time. And, and that was when I got into 12 step and I, you know, and to be honest, I started going at first because I felt like, um, I felt like, oh, Hey man, like they're probably going to make me go and I can start going and it'll look good to the judge. But I can remember, so I, I was walking home from the police station that night or that next morning after I got arrested. And I, I grew up like less than a mile from this thing. So I'm walking home. It's like probably seven in the morning, right? On a, on a Monday. Um, and I'm walking back home. And I, first thing I do is I call the kid that was going to take the road trip with me. And I call him and I'm giggling, ha, ha, ha. Hey, man, like, hey, dude, hey, can't go to California anymore. He goes, why? What happened? And then I lose it. And I start crying on the phone telling him what happened. And he's like, dude, go home. Because I'm just walking around at this point. And I remember there was thoughts in my head of wait until the bar opens and don't go home yet. Go get drunk. And it wasn't from a place of, I want to escape this feeling. It was, I want them to know how much I hurt. Hmm. And I think there was so much of me that at that age was doing so many things because I wanted people to see beyond the, the facade that I had created. I didn't want them to see me as the athlete, as the good student, as the perfect kid, as the kid who was handling things so well, the kid with all the opportunity that's going to go off to Michigan State and do all and make us all proud. I wanted to be seen as the broken, sad, lonely kid that didn't know what the hell was going on in life. Hmm. But I didn't know how to show that. I didn't know how to allow people in to, I didn't know how to let people support me. Hmm. And so I think there was elements of like, I, in that, you know, to transition, like that was what was so special when I got to 12 step was experiencing men and women of AA who were so open and loving and caring. And it had nothing to do with me. Right. Everything in my eyes, I always needed to prove and I needed to earn. I needed to earn your respect and your love and your admiration. And I needed to earn blah, blah, blah. And walking into those rooms and having people share such love to me for nothing, for, and it had nothing to do with me. Just, and it was because of the type of who they had a, made a choice to be. Yep. And it was just so special. And I think that was like, you know, the court case got me there and trying to hack the system got me there. And, but it was the, it was the love and appreciation and connection with a stranger yeah. that is really what allowed me to, to start to unpack all the, all the sadness and pain and, and, you know, and now I could say like that day was, that was the last day that I drank was that DUI. It's been, you know, 15, over 15 years now. And 
as we say, that was your point of no return. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so and it's you've been, been clean such a beautiful and sober. Thing. You've been clean and sober how many years now? Uh, so January was 15 years. Wow. I mean, just very well done. You know, we've talked to so many people in recovery. And I always say that because it's, I, I don't have my own experience with being addicted, but I know it's not easy to stay clean and sober. So I think it's a huge accomplishment. Well, thank you. And I, I mean, I think that there's a lot of like, um, you know, there, there's been, it's been a lot of things, right? People always ask like, how'd you do it? And it's like, it's been a lot of stuff. It was like, you know, early on it was ego. Like I didn't do everything right. You know, like I was, I was eight, eight, you know, I was 22 years old when I got sober and I was trying to, you know, I had been DJing in and out of nightclubs and bars for, for a couple of years at that point. I started when I was 17. So like, you know, I was also 20, you know, like I said, 22, I didn't want to go lock myself away and everything in AA was always about, you know, change the, the people, places and things. And I was like, I can't go be a hermit, man. I can't go, you know, I got to live my life. I got to get a job. I, like. So, you know, I still put myself probably, I think it was partly my ego that allowed me at times to be like, no, I don't drink. I'm going to go into these clubs. I'm going to go into these environments. I'm going to be around, you know, I was around people that were doing, you know, were drinking and doing cocaine and smoking weed. And I was around that, but it was like enough of my ego at the time, which I would never recommend that for anybody. Definitely not anybody young <laughs> in recovery. I would definitely not recommend it. That's um, funny. But I think that there was an element of... um I also think that like, there is a part of, you know, I, I was getting so much like my, I was in so, like, I was so frustrated and in, in, in a decent amount of pain at that time that when I got sober and I knew I was doing it for different reasons than other people, yeah. you know, um, that like when I started getting help and, you know, it, it was such a benefit and it became kind of part of my identity, especially at 22, when you're starting to kind of really figure out who you're going to be as an adult, right. um, so there's a lot of things. I mean, I, I'd love to say that I did it the right way, but I didn't. I mean, like I fought the program a lot. Like, it, you know, God was a struggle for a long time. I didn't want the accountability. I wanted to be, you know, I still have that poster child syndrome of I want to walk into the meeting and I want to give you my great three or four minute share. And then I want to walk out and I don't want to have a sponsor and I didn't want to be accountable and I didn't want to do the steps. And so much of it was based in fear, right? Like I was afraid that, I think one of, there was a fear of like, what if I do the steps and it doesn't help right? and I'm still broken yep. and I'm, and, and there was a fear of, of not doing it right or of what I would uncover. Um, and you know, it was funny. I, I got four and a half, I got four and a half years sober and I had no spot. I'm, so I eventually move out to LA. I'm in, I'm in Los Angeles and I've been out here for years and I'm building my career as, you know, working in entertainment and working on shows like Undercover Boss and a show called The Pitch for AMC and I'm starting to grow and build and, and I remember going to this meeting in North Hollywood and I'm probably about, you know, a year, uh, four and a half years sober at this point. And I do my good little share, my little special share of, you know, I'm such a good little per young person in AA and now, you know, I'm like 27, right? I feel like I got this thing figured out. And I remember a guy walks up to me after the meeting and he goes, and I'd never met this guy, just complete stranger, big, tall dude, bald head, you know, walks up to me and goes, Hey man, just want to introduce myself and let you know that I think you're absolutely full of shit. Oh. <laughs> and he goes, and he goes, okay. Hey man, he goes, knock it off. Like five years is dangerous. Like get a sponsor, do the steps, stop playing around. Wow. And 
I asked him, I kind of begged him to be my sponsor. <laughs> and he's the first one to take me through. And it's like, you know, I talked, I wanted so desperately for someone to see me beyond the fake facade of having it together that I was giving everyone in whatever, for whatever it was, whatever the reason it was, whatever he saw in me in that day, whatever was in that share. Maybe he had, you know, he worked in a, he worked at a rehab facility. So maybe he just, it was like, oh man, he, he had those goggles for seeing the BS and he yeah, saw it. Yeah. And, but I mean, I told that man things that I had never, had never even spoken out loud before. And I oh, shared no. with him the shames and the fears and the, the sadnesses and, um, and like, that's the power of a, of a stranger. I mean, that's yep. a stranger walking up and, ha and being bold enough to speak truth into, into my life. Um, and the and power of the, oh, I lost the word, not mentor. What do you call them? A sponsor. Sponsor. Yeah, the power of the sponsor. You can't, Yeah. You, you, yes, you can do it on your own, but it's going to be better if you do it with someone. Well, here's the thing. You don't have to. Right. You could do it. You don't have to. And I think right. that that's the, you know, and now I get to sit, you know, like, like this week, right? Like, you know, my, you know, Monday I was at a meeting with my sponsee and then Tuesday night, it's like, I'm at a meeting and my sponsor is part of that meeting. My sponsee is part of that meeting. Like I, I sit in this room now, I've had the same home group now in LA for over eight or nine years. And I sit in that room and I look around that room and those are, those are men. I go to a lot of men's stag men only meeting. And they're men that I can look at and be like, I, I remember when he was sharing about his wife getting cancer and now she's gone. And I, but I've seen him week in, week out and he's here and he shows up and this guy shows up every single week and he's the guy that unlocks the door and he's the one that does the coffee. And it's like you, there's, there's such a powerful thing because for years and years and years, I danced around. I'd go to this meeting and this meeting and this meeting and this meeting, but I never really got plugged into a specific meeting. Right. Because it was a Phil show. Right. It was the, right. I'm going to, yeah. I'll go when it's convenient, blah, blah, blah. Getting plugged into a system where I have roots, you know, where like my sponsee is going to ask where I was at if I didn't show up. My yeah. sponsor is going to check in with me. Guys are going to want to know, you know, these, I'm now, my life is, my entire life isn't AA, right? I have a lot of different pockets of the world, but like, that's a very important part. And I set my life up to where. It's not just, oh, I go when Phil wants to go or when Phil needs it because I, like, I will always prioritize other stuff. Yeah. Well, you have a commitment now. You have a commitment yeah. to your sponsor and you have a commitment to your sponsees. And I, I, I just think that the value of relationships is something that is huge whether you're in recovery, no matter where you are in life, you have totally. to have relationships with other people. You, you know, I don't know who said no man is an island, but it's true. You yeah. know, you're not going to live a good life if you're just off there all by yourself. So and you isolation have to have is relationships. Yeah. yeah, isolation is so dangerous yeah. for most people, and definitely for for addicts and alcoholics. Yeah. And yeah. and I will say, you know, the one thing I, I had this discussion with somebody one time where we were. There was a frustration I had where, you know, I, I, I attend church and I, uh, half the time I feel like I sit in church and I like rip apart the, the, the sermon, right? That's just how my brain works, right? I'm a, I want, you know, I think I'm smarter than everyone. I want to destroy it, blah, 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 blah. You know, I've got issues. And no one said I was perfect, right? Other than me. Uh, and 
But it was, I remember there is, you know, you'll hear sometimes people will talk about the, the void. We hear the void, right? That people feel that internal void. And it, and that void, that void is what marketers attack us with. So every time you watch it, you know, it's how they find our pain and they tell us that whatever they're selling is what's going to cure it, whether it's especially car, pharmaceutical companies. Right? Oh, oh yeah. You pharmaceuticals, whether it's yeah. whether it's that new car, that new house, yep. that new trip, yep. whatever it is. Yep. The idea is to find the pain point and then somehow turn your product into the thing that's going to solve the void. Right. You know, the other thing I've heard other people talk about that the void can only be, um, the void can only be filled by God. Right. I've heard in, in, and I've heard people say that, you know, God, God created the void in us to, so that it would be filled by him. And I personally don't want to believe in that. I personally believe that my God, my higher power is bigger than uh, cr creating me incomplete so that I needed him. I don't think that he's that codependent. Yeah. I don't want to believe that my my higher power is codependent. Um, <laughs> but so it got me in a conversation with some people. I'm like, well, what is that void? And what I and the only the best answer I can come up with, and I'm not I'm not a psychologist, I'm not an expert. So you take that this is just, you know, the gospel of Phil, right? Which is, you know, <laughs> take it or leave it. How it, I think the void is only filled with community. I think. I think it is, it, that is what it is. And that includes everything. That includes your friends, your family, the people that like, I think the void is, is wanting to be connected. It's, it's connection with another person in a real way. And you can look at life and we can look at a lot of things in our society. And it's like, how can you argue that that is not what we are chasing yep. so desperately? Yep. We are like, like it is, there was a, a movie I watched recently where it was talking about a lot of people that it, it was, a, you know, I, I'm going to come off sounding like the super Christian guy who's preaching it, but it's like, you know, the Jesus culture, I was on a plane flying back somewhere and I saw the in movie and there's an argument he's talking about, he's about the 1960s and about the, you know, the movement. He's like, you know, there was, he's talking to a guy who was like very anti the hippie movement, anti drugs, anti alcohol, anti partying, you know, love sex, rock and roll. And the guy was like, "How can you? How can you see? Look at that, and not see how what that is, and not see that for this, this longing to be connected with something. They are searching for God, whatever you want to consider God, or however you want to look at it. For me, higher power. You know, I had a lot of anger towards God, so it was easy when I came in to call it higher power because yeah, I didn't need to define that as much. It was just." <laughs> But we're seeking, like we're, we have that void and we're trying so many things, whether that is the money or it's, or it's money, sex, porn, like the social media, we're like, we're pop, prestige pot. We're trying to fill that piece of us that feels small and empty. Yep. My, my two thirty feeling my two thirty AM feeling. Yep. And it's like, the only thing that like that what really makes that feel whole is like sitting on the back patio with my dad. Yeah. Yeah. It, I get it, it. It's it's last night my buddies come over and we have a little makeshift, you know, a little propane tank fire and we hang out and smoke cigars and we sit and we chat and we talk. And we, and did we did we solve the world's problems? Hell no. But did we get to did, did we get filled for at least a couple more days 
of of love and joy with our friends. And I think that that's the one thing that I'm trying to get better and better and better at is so often we get sober and we're all hunting for that magic door. The magic door you walk through and you never have a problem ever again, or the one solution that's going to be the solution forever. The right. one shower I get to take that, that I never need to take another shower ever good, again. Good luck with that. Okay. Is that right? And Tell always, me when you find that. Totally. Right. <laughs> and it's like, and then I have to remind myself, it's like, Phil, you tie your shoes every day and you don't, you don't lose your mind about it. You don't sit there and cry every time and go, why am I tying my shoes again? I must be doing life so wrong because I shouldn't have to keep tying these shoes. It's like, hey, you tie your, it's, it's, we call it one day at a time. Yep. Or we call it the daily bread. Yep. Or we call it the daily reprieve. It's daily. Yep. It is. And it's, and it, there's joy in that. There's oh, yeah. joy in not needing to figure everything out. And like, I, look, I still want to, I still have times where I have to remind myself, like my default is not being here and being present. Yep. My default is, is some, you know, I'm, I'm 37 and single, right? My, my, my default is some moment in the future when I meet my perfect person that I want more than anything. And oh my God, am I going to be enough for her? Am I going to be good enough? What do I need to do today? So I'm good enough to prove to people on social media It's like, bro, like that, that is, but and it, it happens. Like yep. we, that's no, the, I get it. I yeah. Get it. And if we can just kind of, Hey, you know what? I woke up today and I got up. And the sky is still up there. Oh, yeah. And if that's as good as it gets today, that's not bad. No. And it's like we, there's so many, like, you know, it's kind of a weird thing, but I always joke with some of my buddies. I'm like, you know, I'm like, what's your grandfather's name or your great grandfather's name? And most people, most people don't know. Like, you're not, I'm not talking like, hey, some, uh, like, you're, I don't think like, I know my great grandfather's name. Right, that's a, and it's that's like, an interesting question. And so you know we, what? Unfortunately, I don't have a way to find out because my grandparents aren't living anymore. But right? oh well. <laughs> and so there's that. So I say that at like so often, a lot of people get very caught up in like legacy. Like, oh, what am I? I want to make my mark. I want to leave a legacy. I want. And it's like, <laughs> okay, cool. There's that's fine. But it's like, we're three generations from being. Absolutely forgotten right. completely. <laughs> right. Like, like that uh, is a very good point. And and so very it's good. like with the time that with the time that we do get, how do we want to spend it? And it's like, do and it's not just like what do we want to do, but it's how. Yep. Like, do you want to be anxious and sad and frustrated and not see and and, and be and think the world is ending? Do you want to be at peace and feel joy and be able to smile more and be in like every moment that we choose not to smile is a moment we're losing the opportunity to do so. And look, and look, I'm not saying that like, I'm not super Cal, you know, California and like live in, it's all crystals and rainbows and, and like, I get look, it. life is tough, man. And it can be, but it also can be extremely beautiful and extremely amazing when you take, when you do the things that you, when you do the small steps and you yep. learn some of the tools to be able to help recenter yourself, reground yourself and, and keep things. This is, you know, the, the one thing that I, I, I was having this discussion with my father where it was like, 
And, and we were just talking and I was like, I wonder if, you know, you hear people that say, you know, like it, they'll get, you know, they get the diagnosis, right? They'll get like a six month diagnosis or, or they'll learn that a family member is going to uh, die in six months. Say it's, you know, and, and they, and they have to make a bunch of changes to their life, right? And what they do, because that perspective, sh and I go, maybe, maybe living a successful life can be determined by how little your life would change if you were to get a six month diagnosis. Hmm. Like if you were to learn- I get it, I understand. It you, took me you know, a minute to get it, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. it's like, and I'm just, for anyone that's listening- and it, You it, live it, your it's, life it's, to the fullest no matter what. No matter what. And, and the it's fact like, that, okay, now you've, there's a time limit on it. You're still living your life to the fullest, sure. but you've been doing that all along. Yeah. I think that's a great philosophy. And, and of course, you're going to, like, of course, yeah. like, if, yeah. you, of course, if you were six months, like, things are going to change in your life, of course. But, yeah. but if, but like, what I never want, what I don't want is I don't want to live my life a certain way and have something significant either happen to me or happen to a family member or happen to somebody that I care about. And all of a sudden, my life needs to completely be changed. Right. Like, if I have to completely revamp, like all that tells me is like when when things when life gets to a place where what really matters really matters and i have to change everything that means like what, what didn't the, matter what, before what was i what was i what was i making more important than the things that really matter yeah why didn't it matter before yeah i yeah. get it no i think that's i think that's a great philosophy I, I love it. I love your story. I love your philosophy. I love everything you have to say. Um, and you're helping others. I read that in your bio. You have your website, philipbarb.com. And for the listeners, two L's and two B's at the end of Barb. Lots of B's, lots of L's, lots of P's, lots of B's. Two my, P's, my, two L's, three B's. Right. Oh, see, the, and you know, the funny thing is like um, my dad, you know, such a dad joke type of a guy. And it was always like, you know, people would be like, oh, B-A-R-B-B, -B, two B's. He's like, no, actually it's three B's, right? Yeah. Like it's always this thing, right? It's like <laughs> such a ridiculous thing. But yeah, I mean, so if anyone goes philipbarb.com. So I do, I do personal development, one-on-one -on -one coaching. Um, I also go and speak. Uh, to, you know, high school kids, college kids about, you know, substance abuse, peer pressure, um, career development. Uh, and, you know, I always try to, you know, I think the one thing that I try to be very high energy and I try to really connect with kids on their level. And it, the nice thing is no matter how much, how, how much older I get or what, as, as I age, it doesn't matter because my story is at the same time where they're at, yep. right? It was yep. when I was 14, 15. So it's easy for me to tap back in and get to that place. Yeah, you but, weren't like a guy who found drugs at 40 years old. And ex exactly. So it's a little bit more. No reality on that. Exactly. Yeah. So it's a yeah. little bit more relatable to them. And, but the thing that I even say is like, I talk about substance abuse, but like the message isn't, I'm not dare. I'm not just don't do drugs, kids. Like that's not my message. Like my message is so much more about the emotional side of things. Because look, not every, not every 13, 14, 15, 16 year old kid is, is out doing drugs or doing, but like, right. All those kids are dealing with insecurities and are dealing with that void and dealing with that part of them that doesn't feel good enough or or confident enough or we're all we because we're humans and we all have that missing that little void right that we feel whether it's a real thing or whether it's it's just created right but I think that what I really in what I say and I talk with parents about this a lot because so often parents will be like well. You know, I, I told my kids they could talk to me. 
Like I told them they could go talk to the counselor. Like I've, and parents think that just offering that is enough. And it's like, you can't just tell people like children, adults, but children really need to have behaviors modeled for them. They need to see what it looks like. And so if you just go, Hey bud, like, Hey, you know, I love you and I care about you. and I'm not going to be angry. You know, you can share with me, right? Cool. And then a parent goes, well, they know that I'm there. And it's like, but have they seen what it looks like to be authentic? Have they seen what it looks like from you? Because when I was a kid, I just thought I was going to get in trouble. I just thought I was going to be misunderstood and I was going to get in trouble. No good deed goes unpunished. I felt there's no reason why. So even if I'm one of nine people that they need to hear from or talk to, like what I care about is being able to like try to be entertaining while delivering a message of, of hope. And also I think a big part of it is just allowing them to see what it looks like for a 30 something man to stand in front of a, a thousand people and tell a story about holding my mom's hand while she took her last breath. Right. And this is what it looks like to say, what I was doing was this, but how I really felt was this. What I really felt was lost and just like I didn't know where. And like there's there's just power in the ability of us to be real with people because we live more now than ever. We live in such a fake world. Yep. We live yep. in such a fake world of filters and and masks and the guy who the guy who's got the home the guy with the $10 million amazing life today, tomorrow we find out that he was a fraud and it was all a lie. Yep. It's, I, there's, more million, there's more millionaires online well, willing to teach you how to become a millionaire that have never made more than 60K in, a, in their lives. Yep. yep. We are in a complete world of falsehood. Yep. Yep. And, but, but for those of us that can be bold enough and will step up to the plate to be real and to say, Hey, I don't have it figured out. I'm 15 years sober. And I still have moments where I'm like, why am I making, why am I making year one mistakes? <laughs> why am I right? <laughs> like those are to, to, for us. And the, you know, the, you know, the one word, the funny, it's, it's so funny. It doesn't matter how much time I get. It doesn't matter what I, how many books I read, anything. The number one word that when I hear it in someone else's testimony, or I hear it in somebody else's in a in a speech or a talk or the word that that my word that shouts like it's absolute lights on a billboard humble hmm, because it is something that i it is a word that i that brings me so much peace and joy and it feels so unnatural to who i am my <laughs> ego is out of hand i'm judgmental i want to be the best of the best of the best, you know, and I need to look good and blah, blah. And it's like, so when I hear that word humble, it's like, ah, oh, that's the reminder I needed. I needed yep. to hear the word. So word of the day. I love it. Yep. Philip, thank you for talking to us today. I love your story. I love your passion. And um, yeah, philipbarb.com, everybody. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Take care, everybody. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. 
For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.